The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Shelly, and I'm going to be reading the scripture for today. Our scripture will be coming from Psalm 71, verses 1 through 12. This will be a responsive reading, and... Um, here we go. I pray that this comes alive to you today. Um, this is a prayer of an old man for deliverance. In you, O oh Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man, for you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence, from my youth, by you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. Saying, God has forsaken him, pursuing and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. Oh God, do not be far from me. Oh my God, hasten to my help. This is the word of the Lord. Are you ready for the gospel? brother yeah and uh, and after a great reading like that from our dear sister Shelley and after that kind of musical flourish you're gonna have to preach the gospel no pressure <laughs> over the past few weeks we have been walking through the Psalms under the general theme putting the Psalms to work and today by God's grace we come to Psalm 71 Psalm 71, and over the past uh, few weeks, you may have noticed that we have been considering these psalms under the general themes and under sort of the general outline of uh, the work of the psalm and then the witness of the psalm. So we're going to look at the work of Psalm 71, and then we're going to look at the witness of Psalm 71. The work of Psalm 71 is bringing certainty in uncertain times, bringing certainty in uncertain time, particularly 
for the exile, to those who have either been displaced or know the vulnerabilities of displacement. We know that this was the traditional use of Psalm 71 because the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that was commonly used in first century Israel uh, throughout uh, the first century Jewish people, uh, the Septuagint includes a header to Psalm 71, which says this, of the sons of Jehonadab or of the first exiles. So if you want to know what this psalm is for, it's telling you in the Septuagint, it's for exiles. Sons of Jehonadab uh, were Gentiles. And according to Jeremiah 35, these were Gentiles who had been living amongst God's people. They were ethnic minorities descended from the Kenites. Remember, you all may remember Moses' father-in-law. You all remember Moses' father-in-law and, and his whole people group. Those people actually found themselves dwelling amongst the Hebrews as nomads among the people of God. And so God's people had always been a mixed multitude. And, uh, and, and, and this psalm won't let us forget that there are those in our midst that have an exile experience even in the household of faith. There are those right here, even amongst God's people, that can find themselves feeling what it feels like to be, uns uh, to, to, to be in exile. And, and the Lord sees you. The Scriptures see you. They see those experiences. The experience of an exile is replete with uncertainties. The first uncertainty we see lifted up here in Psalm 71 is the uncertainty of belonging and standing in the community. Displacement is when you are... Uh, pushed out or you have to leave a place where you naturally belong, and you find yourself in a place that treats you like you don't belong, a place where you had standing, and now suddenly you find yourself in a place where you have no standing. Notice what it says in verse 1, let me never be put to shame. Shame and humiliation is when a person is made to feel as though they don't belong. To feel as though they have no standing, to feel low as that they have no dignity, no standing, no belonging. You know, in the days of segregation in the United States, separate was never equal. Separate was never equal, despite what, what people said, despite the propaganda, separate was never equal. It was, you, you notice that uh, African Americans, uh, when buses were segregated, buses were not segregated side by side. It was not black folks on one side, white folks on the other. Black folks were in the back. Some folks had to sit in the back because they had to feel a sense of inferiority. Not just separation, but inferiority, you see. Inferiority. Humiliation is when you are made to feel inferior. And exiles, exiles find themselves thrust, find themselves dealing, grappling with those dynamics. Another uncertainty of the exile is the uncertainty of rights and protection. Notice what it says in verse 4, the psalmist prayed to be rescued from the grip of injustice and cruelty. Displaced people often don't have the same rights as those, recognized as those who are settled, those who are indigenous to that place, those who have citizenship. And so the exile find themselves in a particular place of vulnerability, easily able to be taken advantage of because they know that they have no natural, no indigenous advocate in that place. They know that the laws are not set up for them, but set up against them. And in verse 10, we see there's also the uncertainty of peace and privacy. 
Verse 10, I, I thought this was fascinating. Verse 10, the psalmist calls his enemies, quote, the watchers of my soul. In your, your translation, it may say the watchers of my life, the watchers of my nephesh, my, my soul. But it also means my, my body, my, 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 my being. These are folk that just watch me carefully. The, the, the psalmist, the, the exile, feels the feeling of hypervisibility. Anybody that's found themselves in a situation of marginalization or oppression knows the feeling of hypervisibility. Hypervisibility. You know, um, there's, a, there's a saying amongst African Americans, uh, it's a saying, a phrase called driving while black. You drive certain places and you, you feel that you are being watched. Shopping while black. Come on, somebody. You know I'm talking, right? Bird watching while black. Come on, both of them, John. Eating ice cream while black. This is hypervisibility. Hypervisibility. This is a feeling, this is a distinct feeling of the exile. The exile knows that they cannot easily blend in. They know that in some ways there's kind of a target on their back. They know that they stick out like a sore thumb. Here's the thing. When we sign up with Jesus, the Bible says that we become exiles, that we become strangers in this world. If you don't believe me, look at the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, it calls us exiles and strangers. When you, when, you, when you start to walk in the light, when you start to look like, you know, we sing that wonderful song, walk in the light, the beautiful light. Now, here's the thing about walking in the light. When you walk in the light, the darkness will not like it. The darkness will not like it. The darkness will come against you. The darkness will make you feel like an exile. The darkness will make you feel like you don't belong. The darkness will persecute you when you walk in the light. When you walk in the light. It's a beautiful thing to walk in the light, but people will treat you in ugly ways when you walk in the light. Exile experience. Our sense of belonging, freedom, and even peace can all seem, can all feel uncertainty. But, but the good news of Psalm 71, the good news of this passage is that when everything else feels uncertain, God will be our certainty. Amen. God will be our certainty. And we have, we have four things that, four aspects of God's certainty that, that, that are coming out of this passage right now, especially comfort and encouragement to the exile. Here's the first thing. First, we see in our passage the certainty of God's sheltering commitment. The certainty of God's sheltering, sheltering commitment. That's my first point. Verse 3, be a rock of dwelling to which I may continually come. Be to me a rock of dwelling to which I may continually come. Now, Psalm 71 is uh, just like uh, we, we, we dealt with on last week with Psalm 70. Psalm 71 borrows, takes its first three verses from Psalm 31, 1 through 3. If you were to look at Psalm 31, 1 through 3, the, the words would be almost the same. But, but these verses are lifted from Psalm 31 
uh, 1 through 3, and they are changed. They are adapted to the situation of being in exile, and this is where there's the change. The psalmist deliberately changes the language of Psalm 31.3, which calls God a rock of refuge. That word is ma'az, to the word ma'on, rock of habitation, rock of habitation. There's actually in the Hebrew, there's just, and people even, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some, uh, commentators, some biblical commentators that think that this is just a scribal error, that this is, this is a single Hebrew letter that was shifted from, uh, from, 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 from one, a Zion, from one letter, Zion, to, to, to another letter, Noon, which very, looks very similar, but it's instead of ma'az, a rock of refuge, is ma'on, a rock of habitation, but God never makes mistakes. God wouldn't allow a scribe to mess up this gospel, mess up his word, and so this is this is rock of habitation. This was in deliberate. This was intentional. This was a shift. And the reason why we have, rather, rather than rock of refuge or rock of habitation, is because habitation is the deepest longing of the exile. The, beyond, above everything else, the, hab, the exile wants to go home. The exile is longing for a home. And, and, here's what it, and here's what this is telling us when he tells us, God, be my rock of habitation that I may continually come. It says that God will be our home, that God will be our always place. Repeat after me, always place. Always place. Always place means that there is belonging for the exile because God himself will always be your belonging. God is your always place. The, things, the thing that makes home distinctive for the psalmist, is, he says it very clearly, is that home is an always place, a rock of dwelling to which I may continually come. Continually is the word uh, tamid, which, which literally means constantly, continually, or always. And so what the psalmist is asking of God is he's saying, God, be for me always. When, 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 when nothing else is for me, always be there for me. You see, if God was just a rock of refuge, if he was not a rock of habitation, then he might be for you sometimes. He might be for you on a visit. He might be for you on a temporary vacation or temporary stay. But if God is your house, if God is your dwelling place, if God is your my own, if God is your habitation, you can always go home, you see. In good times and bad times and strong times and weak times, when I have succeeded and when I have shown up failed, the one thing that remains the same is God is my dwelling place. God is an always place for us, beloved. And that's such good news. That's such gospel news. That, that, that's the gospel in a single Hebrew letter, a single Hebrew word. That's such good news because people are so sometimey, aren't they? Oh, yes, they are. Oh. Security in this world is so sometimey. But God is the always place. Whether or not people accept me or love me or want to keep walking with me, I know that God will always be there for me. He made that special promise to his disciples. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He, he made that special promise that said, behold, I'm with you always. 
always, even to the end of the age. God, uh, he's, he would be a place, Jesus promised the church that he would be a place where we could always come. We could always come. And that is the certainty of belonging for the exile. When I'm told I don't belong anywhere else, I, I know I belong to Jesus. Oh, my goodness. I know I belong to Jesus. I know I belong to Jesus. As Israel wandered the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, looking forward to finally coming to a land that they could call home, Moses said a prayer that reminded them who their home really was. Not where their home really was, but who their home really was. You know, home is not a place. Home is a people. Actually, home is a person. And Moses prayed in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. My own, the same word is in our passage. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses' hope for God's people was in their ability to, was not in their ability to remain so committed to the Lord, but it was in God's ability to remain so committed to them that they that God had always been their dwelling place. And, 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 and as Moses looked back on this people, it was not as though Moses had a favorable moral opinion of these people. Moses, toward the end of his life, said, man, these folks have been rebelling since I first met them. But God, you have still been their dwelling place in every generation. In the generations of Abraham, when Abraham tried to throw away the covenant promises that God had made down in Egypt when he sold his life, when he sold his wife into trafficking, when he tried to throw away the promises with Hagar when he tried to doubt God God was still his dwelling place when, when they went there, when, when, when Judah got into his uh, area of, of sin and wickedness when, when all of the rest of them tried to throw away promises over and over again they could count on the fact that God was still their dwelling place God you have been our dwelling place in every generation not, not, not just in generations of faithfulness but in every generation. And I want to say to you today that God has been your dwelling place in every season of life, hasn't he? Yeah. Not, just, not just in seasons where you've been so good, but in showing up seasons where you've been doing the wrong thing, in seasons where you have turned away, in seasons where you have rebelled, in seasons when you have weren't thinking about the Lord, in seasons when you didn't know your right hand from your left, in seasons where you wish the church folk didn't know what you was doing, in seasons where you wish they didn't know what you was thinking about, in seasons where you was ready to give up, in seasons when you tried to turn your back on the Lord, the Lord was still your dwelling place. Ain't that good news? the goodness of the gospel is that the Lord is always our dwelling place. You know, the punch of the story of the prodigal son, the thing that made the older brother so mad, the thing that shocked everybody that heard is that the father's house is an always place. The older brother thought that the father's house was a sometimes place. In the times when you were acting so good, in the times when you felt like you deserved it, in the time when you was all cleaned up, in the time when you were smelling good and you looked so pure. But here come the prodigal son. Done, 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 thrown away, done, 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 wasted all the things that he had gotten. Here come the prodigal son back to his father's house, undeserving, smelling like the world, looking like the world, thinking like the world. And But he comes to the father's house, and the scripture said the father saw his son from afar off, and he ran to meet his son, and he wrapped his arm around his son, and he put a ring on his finger, and he said, this is my son who was dead, is now alive. The father showed that his house is an 
always plays. Good news is that God's, son, God's house is not only an always place, it's also a protective place. It's a protective place. Look what it says. It says, you have, been, you have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Home is a place. Not only that you can always come, home is a place of protection and refuge. It's a shelter. The word translated rock here is the word salim, which means a crag or a cliff. And so although in English it seems like it's the same word, actually in Hebrew they switched words. The Hebrew is switched words. Now we're talking about a crag or a cliff. And the, the image is a, a place so high and remote that it is a safe zone for that person. You know, I learned a word this week. Whenever I learn a word, I want to share it with y'all. I, I, <laughs> I've learned a word, and so I would, uh, we, we, we're going to get educated together. This word is eerie, eerie. Repeat after me, eerie. eerie. And you may think, well, what does that mean? Not, not, not eerie like creepy. Not that kind of word. Not that, that. Eerie, A-E-R-I-E. And eerie is a large nest of a bird of prey, especially an eagle, typically built high in a tree or on a cliff. Eagles build their nests especially high on cliffs if you, or, or out where predators can't reach. If you go out on Radnor Lake and you go and you, you take your binoculars, you'll see that there are some eagles that have made their nests safely away from human activity, safely away from predators who would seek to devour their young. And Erie is a safe zone for vulnerable, for the vulnerable. And, Psalm, and the psalmist is saying, God... You are my safe zone. God, you are my place of protection. God, you are the place where evil, sin, and death cannot ultimately destroy me. God, you are that, that, that nest for me. God, you are that place where, 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 where the devil tries to, to destroy my soul and, and even my own flesh tries to destroy my salvation. But God, you are the protection for me. Proverbs 18 and 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. God is our eerie. He's our safe zone. He's our safe place. We know if we can just make it home, we'll be all right. The good thing is, when you're in Christ, it's not just about you making it home. Home has come to you. Home is in you. Home is on you. Home has gripped you. You know, you remember growing up, I remember growing up and playing games of tag and hide and go seek and, you know, cup ball and Lord have mercy. You ain't, <laughs> maybe. Maybe you, maybe you all, all, grew, all grew up in, way, in, in times when you could always, you know, afford the best gloves and equipment. But for those of us who just had paper cups and a hand, you know, now you, the paper cup was the ball and the hand was the bat, okay? And in all of these games, in all of these games, you know, what, 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 there was something called home base. Home base was the place where somebody was chasing you. When you reached home base, they had to stop. If somebody was trying to tag you out of the game, in the presence of home base, once you're standing on home base, they can't get you out. As much as they want to put you out, 
If you reach home base, they can't get you out. Now, 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 God being our habitation, God being our place of, of refuge, God being, being that rock of habitation, God is our home base. God is our home base. God is our home base. And, and so trials and tribulations and the devil and the world and the flesh and disappointments and even death itself can chase you. It can try to get you out of the game. But as long as you are standing in Christ, as long as you are standing on home base, as long as you are standing on the rock, as long as you are standing on the foundation, even though the storms may blow, even though the trials may come, even though suffering may come, they can't knock you out of the game because of the power of God's presence. As he looked at this passage, preacher, the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. He said, let thine omnipotence secure me, and be as a fortress unto me. He says, here we see a weak man, but he's in a strong habitation. His security rests upon the tower in which he hides. And it's not placed in jeopardy through his personal feebleness. I thank the Lord that that's the picture of our salvation, that that's the testimony of our salvation. That our salvation and our security rest upon the tower in which we hide and not put in jeopardy through our feebleness, through our waywardness, through our fickleness, through our sometimeiness. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Genesis 7, 16. Genesis 7, 16. You may not be familiar with that verse, but, but here's what it says. It's about Noah and the ark, and it says, and, and, those that entered the, and those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And look at what it says here, and this is my favorite part in this whole story. It says, and the Lord shut him in. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love, see, now, hey, we got to know when to shout. And the Lord shut him in. Here's Noah building this ark. Here's Noah building the ark. And, and, and you know, when my picture of the ark, when I think about the ark, I think, okay, it's about to rain. The, the floods are about to come. A, a cataclysm is about to come on the whole world. And I'm thinking about Noah trying to pull that door closed and hold that door closed so that it won't open and the waters of the flood will come in and sweep them out of there. But it doesn't say that at all. It said that after Noah went in, it said, and the Lord himself shut Noah in. Lord have mercy. Oh my goodness. And so when you come into the ark of salvation, it's not left up to you to keep yourself in the ark of salvation. It's not left up to you to keep yourself in. You're not hanging on to a peg trying to hold on, but the Lord himself by his omnipotent hand, the same hand that spun the Milky Way galaxy into the sky, the same hand that carved the Grand Canyon, the same hand that upholds the universe, that is the power of the hand that shut you into salvation. Lord have mercy. Ain't that good news? So we see good news here about this belonging for the exile, about this certainty of God's sheltering commitment. Then we move on here until we see also the certainty of God's saving commitment. Saving commitment. You remember I said not only did the exile need belonging, not only did the exile need security, the exile also needs peace. The exile needs a sense of peace. Because, because of hypervisibility, there are 
folks who would do them evil that are watching them, plotting. But the good news of the passage here is that while the wicked are plotting evil, God is plotting good. Oh, my goodness. While the wicked are, it seems like that's exactly right. While the wicked are always plotting. You actually have that in my notes. How you know that was in my notes? My boy, Dr. Christine Everson said, always, always. God, God ain't just plotting good sometimes. God is always plotting good. It seems like the, evil, the wicked are always plotting evil, but God is always plotting good. Notice what it says here in verse 2. It says, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. I know, it's interesting. What we expect this to say is, because I'm righteous, I want you to listen to me and save me. Because I've been doing the right thing, I want you to move for me, Lord. But because I've been so good to you, why don't you be so good to me? No, 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 no. But the, but the psalmist understands the gospel. And he understands if I'm going to be saved, it's because of something in God, not because of anything in me. And so he says, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. It's God's righteousness that causes God to move on the psalmist's behalf. And he asked what the psalmist is saying. He said, Lord, I know you're coming through, not because of something in me, but because of something in you. Because God in his righteousness. Now, righteousness is God's commitment. Listen to this. It's important because we use these words sometimes in church, but we might not necessarily always know what they mean. God's righteousness is God's commitment to right making in the world. It's God's commitment to right-making in the world. And because God is righteous, I know that he is going to make things right in this world and in my situation. Now, there's something called moral nonfeasance. Have y'all ever heard of moral nonfeasance? Moral nonfeasance is when you witness something wrong, when you witness something unjust, and you don't Listen, and you don't intervene. And, 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 and when you witness something wrong and you don't intervene, I mean, come on now, this is the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't it right? That's a story of moral nonfeasance, of people who, 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 who witnessed something wrong and they did not intervene. And Jesus actually gives a moral judgment about that. I know that our society right here in the West right now, kind of we got to live in an individualistic society, kind of says, you know, you take care of yours and I take care of mine. But in the Bible, it's very different. In the, amen, somebody. In the Bible, we have a moral obligation to intervene on behalf of those who are vulnerable, who are, who are being taken advantage of, who have been exploited. We have an, we have an actual responsibility. And he, you know where this responsibility comes from? It comes from God. The reason we must intervene is because God intervenes. Oh, my goodness. God intervenes. God is righteous. God is a right maker. That's who God is. It's not just what he does sometimes. It's who God is all the time. God is a right maker. He's a right maker. You know, in the series finale of the hit television, uh, some of y'all now, well, I'm, spoiler alert. Okay? If you've never seen the series Seinfeld, Come on, I'm about to spoil it for you. Now, you all, you're just about 30 years late, but that's all right. If you've never seen, I'm about to spoil it, okay? 
Ah, that's exactly right. In the series finale of the hit television series uh, Seinfeld, the main characters, Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer, are arrested for failing to help a carjacking victim. The actual crime they get arrested for, they sit there and talk amongst each other and kind of smile and chuckle. They get arrested for, what, 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 for what's called criminal indifference. Criminal indifference. And, when the, and the judge who sentences them to a year in jail says this when he sentences them. He says, I do not know how or under what circumstances the four of you found each other, but your callous indifference and utter disregard for everything that is good and decent has rocked the very foundation upon which our society is built. He said, you so selfish, it is undermining everything we stand for. And you know, it's people that in the midst of their suffering and in the midst of their situation, they wonder whether God might be like that. Whether God is guilty of moral nonfeasance. Come on, somebody. I know I'm talking right here. Some people wonder whether God, whether or not, whether or not God is actually passionate about intervening on behalf of those who have been injured, exploited, abused. But Psalm 89 says, righteousness and justice are the habitation of your throne, are the foundation of your throne. Wherever God's reign is, God is making things right. Wherever God's power is, God is making things right on behalf of those who have been injured. God can't sit by and just act like it didn't happen to you because God doesn't just do righteousness. God is righteous. There is something in God that compels God to act when God sees wrong happening in his world. His very nature is revolted against it. He can't stand by while it persists. And this is why Christ came. Christ said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. And so wherever you see the works of the devil in this world, you can know that God has intervened, that God in his passion for justice and righteousness has done something about it, that God is not guilty of moral nonfeasance. Nobody has done more to overturn injustice and to lay the foundation for justice and righteousness than God has. For God is justice. God is righteousness. Just like God is a truth teller and he cannot lie, God is a right maker. He cannot abide while wrong persists. God can't keep his seat while things are happening wrong to his children. God has got to intervene. And so whenever you're calling out to God for justice and mercy, you're not twisting God's arm. When we pray to the Lord and we ask him to intervene on behalf of justice in this world, we are not twisting the arm of somebody who does not want to intervene. We are calling on the war. Listen, the very reason we're praying at all is because God put it on our heart to pray, because God wants to intervene. And so he gave us a mind to call on him so that he can intervene. We are simply asking God to be God in this situation. It was the Protestant reformer Martin Luther that once said this. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's willingness. And so we know that God is willing, that God is passionate, that God is desirous 
to make things right in this world. And on, and on behalf of those who are marginalized, those who have been treated poorly. Here's another thing, and I'm, I'm moving to my close here. We see also the certainty of God's steadfast commitment. The certainty of God's steadfast commitment. Look at what it says in verse 9. This is important. We've got to hit this. It says, do not discard me in my old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. You know, it's interesting. People can become exiles in time as well as space. People can be treated as though they do not belong or that they are expendable when they reach a certain age, as though they have outlived their usefulness, as though they have outlived their place in society, as though they are strangers in their own home. Pat Bailey, 63-year-old lady, precious soul, talks about living in a nursing home where she's lived for five years since having a massive stroke and several subsequent heart attacks. And this is what she says. She says, when I ask questions, they treat me like I'm old and stupid, and they don't answer. Another resident says, you know, when you reach a certain age, people start treating you like you're disposable. I read an article that says approximately one in 10 Americans aged 60 plus have experienced some form of elder abuse. And some estimates range as high as 5 million elders are abused each year. The annual loss by victims of elderly victims of financial abuse is estimated to be at least $36.5 billion. $36.5 billion have been stolen for my elders. This is how we treat our precious seniors our, who are treated as exiles in time. Exiles in time. But God is not like that. God is not like that. God, God doesn't treat people as expendable. God, God does not throw people away. You, 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 you see, if God has been there for you, he will always be there for you. Yeah, and that's what the psalmist appeals to. The psalmist appeals to the time in his life when God took him from his mother's womb. And, 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 and he says, based on your goodness and mercy to me at my mother's womb, I know that you'll always be there for me. If you were there for me when I didn't know my right hand from my left, when I was helpless and weak and, and didn't know anything in this world, I know that you will be there for me in the future. I know that you will always be there for me. God's keeping him in the past was confidence that God would continue to keep him in the future. Brother James Cleveland used to sing a song that simply says, I don't feel no ways tired. Come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy. I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. And this is what this psalm is saying. The psalm is saying, I know that God will be there for me because, I, because, because he, is, he has brought me thus far along the way. And as you look at your future and the situations that you're going through, doubts can start to cloud your mind. You can start to believe and start to succumb to the uncertainties about your future. But, but, but when you begin to succumb to the uncertainties about your future, I just want you to look at your past. 
You look back at the past of how God has dealt with his people, but I want you to look at the past and how God has dealt with you. And, 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 and every one of us, you can testify today. Hadn't God been good to you? <laughs> hadn't God made a way for you? Hey, hadn't God been a savior for you? Hey, hadn't God been a, been, a, been a mother to the motherless and a father to the fatherless? Hadn't God been a doctor in the sick room, a lawyer in the courtroom? Have God been a bridge over troubled water? How has God been a friend when you had no friends? Hadn't God been everything that you need? Hadn't God been good to you? I mean, I mean and, and you know, we sometimes we act like God just started taking care of us today. No, 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 baby. God always been taking care of us. God was taking care of us from an eternity past when he predestined us from the foundation of the world. There has never been a time in which the Lord wasn't taking care of you and me. And here's the, here's the, here's the last thing. Here's the last thing. We see here the certainty of God's sign commitment. It says here, finally, I have become important to many. You are my strong refuge. A portent is an unusual sign. It's something that sticks out like a sore thumb. Now, remember, remember what I said. The exile sticks out like a sore thumb in situations in which they're marginalized. But the Lord has a way of flipping that on its head. He has a way of saying, although you stuck out as a sign of rejection, I'm going to make you stick out as a sign of acceptance. Oh, my goodness. Although you stuck out as a sign of indignity, I'm going to make you stick out as a sign of my dignity and my status and my belonging. Although you have stuck out as a sign of humiliation, I'm going to make you stick out as a sign of my glory, of my glory. And, 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 and that's, what, that, that's what ends up happening here. The, 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 the psalmist comes to this crescendo, which talks about with the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will, uh, it says, with the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come and I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. The psalmist is saying, God, you're going to do something so great in my life. God, you're going to do something so amazing in my life that, that, that their people are going to fall flat on their face and they are going to say, wow, I cannot believe that that happened for you. He is saying that the healing will be more spectacular than the hurt. He is saying that, 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 that you, you stared hard at my calamity, but just wait, baby, till you see my deliverance. He said, he said when it happens, I'm going to give God all the praise for it. The late, great Alex Haley, author of Roots, was known for having in his office a picture, a peculiar picture of a turtle sitting on a fence. And people would go into his office and they would look at that turtle sitting on a fence. It's a strange picture that he had in his office of a turtle sitting up on a fence. And once a, a journalist asked him about that picture, he, he, he said, why do you have this picture of this turtle sitting on a fence? And he said to the journalist, Alex Haley said, I keep it here to remind me of a lesson that I learned long ago. He said, if you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, there's one thing you know about it. You know he had some help. <laughs> Lord have mercy. <laughs> if you see a turtle sitting on a fence, 
The one thing you know about him is that he had some help. And God has made us to be the turtle sitting on the fence. So that the world looks at us and they say, you know, the one thing I know about you is that you had some help. He wants us to know. He wants the world to know that, he, that there is something so spectacular, something so amazing, something so mind-blowing in your life and in my life that you couldn't do it for yourself, that the world couldn't do it for you, that only God himself was able to do that for for you. Ain't that good news? This holiness that you got, you couldn't give it to it yourself. You had some help. This peace that you got, you couldn't give it to yourself. You had some help. This deliverance that you got, you couldn't give it to yourself. You had some help. This glory that's on your life, you couldn't give it to yourself. You had some help. This resurrection on the last day, you couldn't give it to yourself. You had some help. This shining like the sun in the Father's kingdom, you couldn't give it to yourself. You had some help. Ain't that good news? Good news indeed. Father, we thank you for being so good to us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being our help. Thank you for being great in our lives, oh God. You are magnificent, oh Lord, better to us than we realize and certainly better than we deserve. Lord, help us to live to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.